0: Now we find ourselves in the town of Uruk in the land of Sumer, located in ancient Mesopotamia, which straddled modern day Iraq and Kuwait. It's around 5,500 BC. Here we find Ishkur, an Urukan merchant. Ishkur had built a complex of buildings for seed storage. Grain and seed storage was tricky. All grains and seeds were very precious, as most years there was little beyond what was needed for the farmers to feed their family and to hold for next year's planting. When you stored your grains and seeds, the ones on the bottom next to the ground would mold. And there could be other mold as well if the storage wasn't well ventilated. This mold loss represented a significant loss of a very precious resource. Ishkar put slate floors on the bottom of his storage buildings, which helped reduce the molding. He also built his storage buildings narrow and high so less of his grain and seeds came into contact with the ground. Ishker had been a farmer himself, but when he developed his new method of grain storage, his farmer friends asked him if he would store their grain too. Farmers liked storing their seed crop, the seeds they would use to plant next year's crop, with Ishker because he had very little loss due to mold over the winter. Ishker charged them a percentage of the seed they stored with him, but it was less than they would lose if they stored it on their own. But Ishker had a problem. He stored several different seeds and grains, wheat, barley, onions, beans, lettuce, and sesame seeds, for several different farmers. How could he tell how much of each type of seed farmers stored with him when it came time for him to return their seeds the following year? At first, Ishkur only stored grain for a few of his friends, and it was easy to remember whom he had stored grain for and how much. But as more and more farmers wanted him to store their grains and seeds, he built more buildings and needed some method of keeping track. Ishkar's solution was to create a clay box for each farmer. He put one clay token in each farmer's box for each measure of seed the farmer had stored with him. One kind of token for wheat, another kind for barley, etc., He would also press each token into the still wet clay on the outside of the box to show what was inside. He then sealed the box. When it came time to give the farmers their seed for the next year's planting, he would open the box and pull out the tokens to know how much to return to the farmers. His sealed clay box method worked so well that other merchants in town adopted it as well.
1: Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 4, The Beginning of History. This is the beginning of history as we encounter the first writing in this episode, which will give us the record of the first king we know of in human history and our historical record. In this episode, we'll visit Sumer, an ancient kingdom in Mesopotamia beginning about 5500 BC. This will take us from the Stone Age, when we first encounter Ishkur to the eve of the Iron Age, about 1300 BC. This approximately four millennia, we'll see a lot of firsts. The first writing, the first recorded numerical system, the first written legal code, the first record of kings, the first use of the wheel, the first non-ornamental use of metal, the first chariot, the first sailboats, the first astronomers, and the first metal weapons. And that's only the list of firsts from the Sumerian civilization. We pick up our story, then, about 5500 B.C. Writing was first developed by Sumerians about 3500 B.C. I've arbitrarily set Ishker, our fictional grain merchant, in the town of Uruk about 2,000 years before that. Some academics think that the first writing started like our fictional Ishker's creative solution to his problem of keeping records for his business. Tokens kept in a sealed clay box, and each token pressed into the clay on the outside to show what's in the box. This morphed into just stamping the clay with the token, and ultimately just drawing the shape onto the wet clay with a reed stylus. We don't know how long this process would have taken to evolve into a genuine written language, but we do know that it did so by 3500 B.C. By 3500 B.C., then, the civilization of ancient Sumer was thriving in southern Mesopotamia. Unlike the vast majority of civilizations in history, their language seems to have been unrelated to any other known language. So it's not known where the Sumerians came from, but they may have been isolated from other peoples for a long time before their appearance in ancient Sumer as the first people to leave a written history. Uruk is sometimes considered the first city in the world. As far as I can tell, it's certainly the first city to leave us an historical record. At its peak in the 3rd century BC, Uruk had city walls surrounding the entire city and housed perhaps 50 to 80,000 people. This is a huge difference from the tribal bands of about 50 people. It was agriculture that enabled this sea change in human organization and culture. This occurred in what has become known as the Fertile Crescent. This is a term that refers to the Middle East during the period shortly after the last ice age, when the climate there was milder than it is now, and the land was extraordinarily productive. Agriculture had allowed people to settle in permanent communities for the first time, and to give up the nomadic lifestyle that humans had lived since the time of the Australopithecines. Yet there's a lot more to building a city of over 50,000 people than sowing and harvesting wheat. To understand how we got from sowing our first wheat crop to building a city the size of Uruk, it's helpful to look at what historical drivers were behind the change. The Rousseauists like to argue that hunter-gatherers were gentle and egalitarian, and that it was civilization that caused societies to become stratified, deprive whole groups of rights and privileges, and begin humanity's long and intractable dance with war, as well as its obsession with dominating other peoples. Well, okay. If you give me the fact that many hunter-gatherers still had significant proactive aggression against out-groups, and many engaged in torture and slavery. I'll give you the fact that they were, on the whole, much more gentle and egalitarian than most agrarian societies that came after them. The interesting question is what led to that gentility? I think the standard Rousseauian answer to that is that we humans are just gentle and nonviolent by nature. It's, quote, civilization that corrupts us. My take is different. Hunter-gatherer groups have no police. There's no state-sanctioned institution that has the authority to discipline members who step out of line. Therefore, they have to find a way to organize society in a way that members don't become violent or hurt each other. Their answer to this has often been to organize egalitarian groups in which members are socialized not to harm each other. This method of social organization is not without its downsides. Lacking laws and a police force, the group can use ostracism and bullying in rather brutal ways to get members to toe the line. Yet the point is not how they get it done, but that tribal members must be socialized to adopt a gentle and egalitarian ethos, as it's not part of their basic nature. Enforcing an ethic of gentleness and modesty is a way for hunter-gatherers to sublimate our more violent human nature. This ethic of gentility and modesty seems to have been lost somewhere between that first hunter-gatherer group that sowed a handful of wheat in the Fertile Crescent and the city of Uruk at its height. Learning to be humble and gentle, to never put your needs before those of another member of your tribe, seems to have worked for many hunter-gatherer bands, allowing them to live without any formal legal system. To my knowledge, it has never worked out for a large number of people in a city or state. To understand why, let's look at the historical drivers that would take the city of Uruk in an entirely different direction. Now that agriculture had established itself, people were able to live in permanent, stable societies. It was no accident that Uruk turned into the first great city. It was located near the Euphrates River in southern Iraq, about 150 miles from modern-day Basra. The Euphrates River flooded and overran its banks every year. This brought fresh silt from upstream to Uruk's farmlands, which provided rich fertilizer every year for Uruk's farmers, which in turn led to exceptionally productive farms. Remember that the first farmers were not much more than subsistence farmers. They were able to grow enough to support themselves as long as they hunted for meat as well. At first, it was wild grains that were farmed. Very gradually, over the centuries and millennia, these strains of grains and crops would be selected by farmers until eventually much more productive strains of agricultural crops would be developed. At this point in the history of agriculture, though, it was still early in the development of more productive crops, yet Uruk would have been driven by the same pressures that have driven many subsequent civilizations. Once the population settled into an agricultural lifestyle, the population would have expanded significantly. How would this new town be able to feed its growing population? The fertility of the soil was undoubtedly one of the answers. Another was the invention of the plow. The domestication of animals, including sheep, goats, pigs, cattle, and oxen in ancient Mesopotamia, allowed for the first beasts of burden. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the invention of the plow. One man with a plow and ox could cultivate many times more land than several men with hand adzes. The combination of fertile soil, the plow, draft animals, and the domestication of other animals that freed people from the need to hunt and gather led, for the first time in history, to a culture that was able to produce enough food for a sizable number of people that did not have to labor to grow or gather their own food. This created one of the strongest drivers in human history, a middle class who could create items that people could consume. The freedom from having to produce food allowed craftsmen to specialize in making one thing, weaving, pottery, building houses, etc., The domestication of sheep allowed them to create cloth, preventing the need to wear animal skins for clothing for the first time in human history. One clay tablet from Uruk lists stonecutters, gardeners, weavers, smiths, cooks, jewelers, and potters among their professions that were practiced there. For the first time, we're therefore beginning to see in Uruk and similar towns springing up in Mesopotamia and elsewhere in the fertile locations around the globe, a middle class who's able to produce goods desired by city dwellers. This middle class, then, with the surplus that they could spend to purchase goods from other merchants, created one of the greatest drivers in human history, one that still drives all societies today, an economy. There was certainly trade, and perhaps what might even be considered an economy of sorts among pre-agricultural Stone Age hunter-gatherers, but nothing anywhere close to the thriving economies of Uruk and other newly formed cities. A thriving middle class contributed to other dynamic forces as well. One consistent theme in the anthropological record ever since the first artistic sculptures were found is religion. It just seems to have been one of those constant themes in human history like love and crime. Given that humans seem to be motivated by religious leanings, the cumulative religious feelings of the large group of merchants, craftspeople, and builders in Uruk would have been a strong driver that would inevitably manifest in one way or another as indeed we see the religious leadings of city dwellers manifesting in culture after culture as agrarian societies established cities across the globe. The way this manifested in Uruk, on the most basic level, as far as I can tell, is the way it happened in all cultures, though the early stuff isn't documented, so we'll never know for sure. One religious leader probably stood up and proclaimed that he had some divine revelation or came to some kind of religious understanding. Followers of that mystic prophet would probably proclaim this religious teaching as the fundamental truth. Members of the local population would then become followers of this new cult or religion in order to satisfy their religious leanings. This pattern would repeat itself hundreds if not thousands of times in the course of human history. Every time a new religion emerged, it would manifest in its own unique ways. These ways could be as different as the mass sacrifices practiced by the Aztecs to the loving-kindness of Tibetan Buddhism under the Dalai Lama. This manifestation is the emergence that occurs when thousands of separate inputs or elements from individual followers affirm and augment their leader's initial religious teachings. This pattern of thousands of historical elements interacting, being pushed in one direction or another by one or more historical drivers, and ultimately, after many thousands of interactions manifesting into some form of emergence, is the pattern that will occur in every historical movement. I don't know the details of the religious dogmatism that emerged in Uruk, but we do know that they built a temple to the sky god An, or Anu, an was recognized by the Sumerians as the king of gods. So by building a temple to An, Uruk was establishing itself as one of the, if not the most prominent cities in Sumer. They also built a temple to his daughter, Anana, or Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. The people of Uruk seemed to have believed that by building temples to these gods, they would attract them to reside there and perhaps adopt them as their protected people. Building two large temples obviously took enormous public works projects to construct. This shows how important religion was to the people of Uruk, that they would expend so much of their excess capital and manpower to construct these temples, though it isn't known how much of the labor used to construct the temples was slave labor. The temples were staffed with a small professional class of priests. It was their job to watch over the temple, conduct religious services, and conduct sacrifices. As far as I know, no specific evidence of human sacrifice has been found in the temples of Uruk. But other Sumerian cities who practiced the same religion conducted human sacrifice, including the city of Ur, 50 miles away. So it's very possible that the priests of Uruk did so as well. A population this large has drivers that led to several other changes in Uruk as well. For the first time in human history, Thousands of people living in one permanent settlement led to stresses that were beyond those experienced by their hunter-gatherer forebearers. We notice that in city after city that was established throughout the world at this time, the old hunter-gatherer ethic of egalitarian changed and societies became very stratified. To understand what these were like, I highly recommend reading the Icelandic sagas. Nall's saga is a good one but any Icelandic saga will give you a good taste for the pre-legal world of the Vikings. These were books written by descendants of the original Viking inhabitants of Iceland a couple of centuries after the original inhabitants migrated there. These books were written after the Vikings had acquired written language and covered a time before they developed the rule of law. Consequently, they had traditions, things like vergelt or manpayment, This was a payment a killer's family must pay to the family of a man who had been murdered. There were various fines for sexual dalliances, damage to property, etc., and outlawry for the most serious offenses. Unlike traditional law, these were not written down and were enforced by the tribe or community. All societies that evolved independently presumably had a period prior to the point where they had a written legal code. The Bible offers a great example of this as well. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they were living a nomadic life, before they acquired a permanent homeland, they had no permanent law. Before their written law, Moses served as their judge. His judgments were written down and ultimately became what is now known as Mosaic Law. These laws are interesting and can be instructive of the types of things prelegal societies struggled with. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free, as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners, because he has broken faith with her. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. These are only a few of the over 600 rules of Moses that would ultimately be written down. These examples are taken from Exodus 21. The people of Uruk then, at some point, had no law, yet the strict ethic of never putting one's needs or desires above your fellow townsfolk would have been breaking down. Uruk was therefore undoubtedly experiencing instances of theft, adultery, murder, and other acts that would later be considered crimes. This nascent unlawfulness would have been a very strong driver for society to develop some means to protect innocent citizens against malignant elements of the town. The solutions that emerged in Uruk were, in broad outlines then, the same as those that most other developing civilizations ultimately developed. First, they developed a strong man who was able to be the lawgiver. That is, people gave up or lost their egalitarian status. They gained the protection of one who, at least in theory, would protect each citizen of the town against arbitrary bad deeds of other citizens. Some seem to think this was a covenant that people willingly entered into. Others seem to think that this generally happened when one powerful man or faction took power against the will of others. I would guess at the latter, but I haven't seen definitive proof of either. This lasted for some time but continued pressure from below ultimately led to the development of a written law. There's been no written law code found for Uruk that I'm aware of, but one has been found for the neighboring city of Ur. So I assume, but don't know, that Uruk developed a written legal code as well. For a long time, I heard that the Code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian legal code dated to 1754 BC, was the first known legal code but the Code of Ur has now been dated to at least 300 years before that. As always, the emergence of law codes was different in different societies that developed them, but they seem to all have some of the same elements. From what I know, they all seem to deal with the standard crimes of murder, theft, battery, and property crimes that our modern law codes do, though they often deal with them in different ways. Babylonian laws had a very eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth feel to them. On the other hand, the code of the city of Ur tended to provide for monetary fines for the same kinds of infractions. They all seemed to cover the ownership and treatment of slaves. The sexual life of the inhabitants was often highly regulated. The Ur code, for example, had at least 10 laws regulating sex, marriage, and divorce. This is a significant number for a code that was not all that extensive. They seemed to deal extensively with the cultivation of crops and the management of livestock, both important issues to agricultural societies. These legal codes represent yet another significant pivot in the development of human civilization. With a strong man ruling these early towns, citizens of these towns would have to live by the justice or the whims of that man. Once a set of laws was written down and a rule of law was established, the ruler was no longer an arbitrary lawgiver. If I had lived in ancient Ur, for example, and knocked out another man's tooth in a fight, I would know that I would owe him two shekels of silver. The code of Ur-Namu, as it's called, is the first time we know of that a population was able to live under the rule of law. Eventually, almost the entire population of the world would live under the rule of law and be protected, at least to some degree, from arbitrary lawgivers. Sadly, many people even today live under very arbitrary systems, even though they may ostensibly have a rule of law. Corrupt and inconsistent police and judges don't always allow them the certainty and protection that a rule of law is supposed to. This is the subject we'll come back to. Yet the ability to count on the protection of a definite legal code was a huge turning point and a great benefit for those who would ultimately come under its umbrella. The breakdown of egalitarian society also introduced one of the strongest historical drivers behind the history of the human race since the development of agriculture, I'm referring to the power struggles that have ensued ever since by strong men and later women to come to power, satisfy their supporters and backers, and overcome their opponents. The study of history has, in large part, often been the examination of the actions of powerful people in fighting for control of their country and the struggles of those people as rulers of nations, including the use of their nation's military against the rulers of other nations. What's striking to me, and often the undertold story, is the thoughts, actions, and reactions of the mass of people. This brings me to a discussion of the, quote, follower gene. It's only a small minority of people who desire to lead the nation. Those who do seem to have a boundless appetite to achieve positions of control or power over other people. What's striking when you step back from history and take the long view instead of drilling down and looking at the detail is what a consistent aspect it is of our human nature for the vast majority of people to be content to follow a strong leader. Although I'm calling this the follower gene, it certainly must be some combination of genetics and environment that leads us to the particular mix of leadership and follower attributes we have. At any rate, there are attributes of human nature that we may not think about very much that would be obvious to intelligent non-humans looking in on us. Perhaps an alien anthropologist stopping by to take a quick survey of humans might think it quite odd that we all seem happy to elect our leaders and then to look up to the leader with such admiration or gripe that our favorite leader wasn't chosen. At any rate, it seems a ubiquitous trait among all pack carnivores. Once an alpha chimp defeats his rival, all in the troop are subservient to him. Wolves, hyenas, who are matriarchal, and even rats all have alpha members that other pack members defer to. Although this leader-follower dichotomy played a role to some degree with pre-agriculture hunter-gatherer societies, it played less of one than in agricultural societies. It certainly became a primary historical driver in the organization of all permanent agricultural societies like Uruk. With this desire to find a strong leader to lead them among the majority of citizens, the strong need to be a leader among a, a much smaller percentage of the population, and the never-put-your-interests-above-interests-of-others hunter-gatherer ethic beginning to break down, the ultimate result of a strong man-ruler was probably a foregone conclusion. The need to enforce order among a perhaps increasingly lawless population, the need to organize large-scale irrigation projects, to build city walls for the common defense and to build ziggurats or temples for religious worship were all strong drivers leading to the need for a very significant level of organization in Uruk. The follower gene gave the inevitable flavor of a mass of people following one alpha leader to every society we will see until we visit Athens in ancient Greece. It was in Uruk then, the largest city in Mesopotamia, where we find the world's first record of a king, King Enmerkar, who established the city in 4500 BC. By the time Uruk became a city of 40 to 50,000 people, society had long since stratified. At the top, there was the king and his close retainers. Below them, a small group of warrior leaders that probably settled into what we would recognize as nobility. Also at the top of society was a small group of priests who seemed to share a significant amount of power. Below them was a middle class of artists, merchants, builders, and other workers in the city. Outside the city, but undoubtedly within the kingdom, was a large number of farmers and shepherds. At the very bottom of society were a small group of slaves. These slaves consisted of both those who had been captured in war and those who had become slaves as a result of becoming indebted. This is roughly the shape of every society we'll see for the next millennium. A lot has happened in the 3,000 years covered in this episode. We've discovered writing and have begun to write the first history. We've made great improvements to agriculture, invented animal husbandry, the plow, irrigation, and the wheel. We have the world's first kings and a stratified society with the king and a ruling class at the top, a middle class, and an entire permanent class of slaves. Instead of simply enslaving those caught in wars or raids, we've learned to enslave those at the bottom of our society. We've developed a much more organized state religion and taken human sacrifice from the occasional event to a regular ceremonial part of our religion. We've also developed war as a far more organized and regular part of society's, quote, progress. But this is a much bigger topic, and you'll have to wait until subsequent episodes before we have time to get into it. During this period, we even encounter the world's first epic story. It's the story of one of Uruk's first kings.
0: Gilgamesh is the son of Lady Wildcow, a goddess, and a mortal man, making Gilgamesh a demigod. He is the king of Uruk. Gilgamesh takes whatever he wants from his people and crushes anyone who tries to get in his way. The old men of the city complain that a king should protect his people and not pester them like a wild ox. The gods hear these complaints and create Enkidu, a wild man who is the only man strong enough to stand up to Gilgamesh. A hunter who encounters Enkidu goes to Uruk to ask that Gilgamesh provide a prostitute to seduce the wild man. Gilgamesh does this, and after several adventures, Enkidu finds his way to Uruk. There is to be a wedding of townspeople, but Enkidu learns that Gilgamesh will sleep with the bride before her wedding day because no one can stop him. Enkidu stands in front of the bride's bedchamber and challenges Gilgamesh. There is a great battle as the two mighty men clash in a battle that shakes the city. After an enormous struggle, Gilgamesh wrestles Enkidu to the ground. Enkidu concedes that Gilgamesh is entitled to be king and the two become fast friends. They agree to slay the monster Humbaba. They set out on a quest and cover 450 miles in three days. An epic battle ensues as Gilgamesh and Enkidu battle the monster Humbaba to the death. Gilgamesh prays to the god Shemesh for help. Shemesh releases 13 storms at Humbaba, who is stunned by the force of the storms, giving Gilgamesh the upper hand. Humbaba pleads for mercy, but Enkidu tells Gilgamesh to kill the monster quickly. Gilgamesh kills the monster, and the two heroes cut down the tallest cedar in Humbaba's forbidden wood, and make a raft to float down the Euphrates to Uruk. Gilgamesh cleans himself up and gets a new robe. The goddess Ishtar is so taken with his heroic exploits, she proposes marriage to him. Gilgamesh declines and reminds her that she is cruel and sent her first husband to the underworld. She is furious and sends the bull of heaven down to take revenge on Gilgamesh. But again, our two heroes kill the bull after another great battle and offer its heart as a sacrifice to Shemesh. Ishtar curses the two, but Enkidu throws the bull's thigh at her. Enkidu ultimately dies and Gilgamesh orders a statue to be built in honor of his great friend. Gilgamesh is devastated by Enkidu's death and leaves Uruk to wander the world in animal skins. Eventually, fearing death, Gilgamesh seeks out Utnapishtim, a person who survived the great flood that ended life on earth and was granted immortality by the gods. Gilgamesh ultimately travels to the twin-headed mountain Mashu. At the gates of Mashu is a scorpion man and his wife. The scorpion man asks why Gilgamesh has come this far that no human has ever journeyed to. Gilgamesh explains that he is on a quest to become immortal. He convinces the scorpion man to let him through and makes it through the perilous cave that goes through the heart of the mountain. Gilgamesh convinces a boatman to take him across the endless sea and the poison waters of death that no human has ever sailed. After more adventures Gilgamesh makes it to the other side to the immortal man Utnapishtim. Gilgamesh asks how to become an immortal man. Utnapishtim tells him how he built a massive boat with six decks and filled it up with every living thing and his family before the great flood. Then came the rains that covered the earth with water and killed every living thing. After a long time, the immortal man let a dove go to find land. The dove could not find land and came back. The same happened with a swallow. Then he released a raven. When the raven didn't return, he realized he was close to land. After that, the gods made him immortal. Ubnapishtam tells Gilgamesh that if Gilgamesh can stay awake for seven days, he will pass the test and become immortal. But Gilgamesh immediately falls asleep instead. Gilgamesh is now depressed that he will not become immortal. After more adventures, Gilgamesh is very happy to return to Uruk.
1: I highly recommend reading the entire epic. It's much better than this abbreviated summary. For the first time in human history, we get a taste of what kind of stories entertain people. Modern readers and scholars seem to be tempted to find some kind of deep moral to the story. That may be reading our current culture and ethics into the story, however. This was a martial culture. King Gilgamesh did evidently really exist. The story was written down a few hundred years after he died. It was written by people who really believed in these gods and things like monsters and scorpion men. It may have been an honest attempt to tell a hero king's story as it was remembered hundreds of years after his death. As a martial culture, these people valued bravery in battle and strong warriors. This was a guiding ethic for a couple millennia. In order to understand how we got to here, It helps to understand the mindset of those who lived in epochs that came before us. If you want to get into the heads of people who lived in some previous historical period, there's no better way than to read their contemporary writings. So I've already talked about this week's read. It's the Epic of Gilgamesh. You can find it online, and it won't take you too long to get through. For a supplemental read, I'd recommend Beowulf. This is an epic poem that gives a good feel for the martial culture of England in the Dark Ages that also believed in valor, bravery, and great warriors. Reading these will give you a good feel for the value that was placed on bravery and valor in battle in societies that are in the very early stages of civilizing. Enjoy. See you next week.